Hi, beautiful people. I hope that you are doing well. Welcome to Insandama Podcast, where we talk about music, literature, cinema, photography, as well as other arts. I am joined today by Cory Barger, the principal bassoonist at the Filarmonica de Boca del Rio and the founder of the Intentional Practice Program. You can learn more about her on her Instagram page at Practice Happier or on her website www.practicehappier.com. Enjoy the show. So, first of all, thank you so much, Cory. Uh, it means the world to me that you agreed to do an interview with me. <laughs> so, thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Uh, I've been admiring you for quite some time now. So, I want to ask you some questions. The first one being, you mentioned that you started your musical journey with the flute. And I was wondering, how did you choose this instrument? And how did you switch to the bassoon? Well, it's a little bit of a long story, um, but I chose the flute because my best friend was playing the flute. She was a year older, and she was in she was a grade ahead of me in school. So I um, saw her, that she was playing the flute, and by the time um, we had the opportunity to take music class in um, fifth grade, which is like you're, you're uh, around eleven years old, mm-hmm. um, I was really excited and I wanted to play the flute just like Marina. And then um, we didn't end up, we didn't actually go to the same school. So I didn't have that friend, uh, built-in friend in band. But of course, when you're in music class, you always make a bunch of friends. Um, one of my closest friends in the class um, was playing the oboe. And after a while, I was kind of bored with the flute because uh, you play the same part. There's so many people in a in a American um band class basically like we didn't have orchestra it's just like a wind band um and there'd be like 15 people playing the flute and they would all be playing the same part and i was like this is boring <laughs> so i um i didn't actually switch to the oboe at first i um my mom had this ancient clarinet um that was like made out of metal and um that she'd gotten she'd she'd played it when she was a kid um, like in the late sixties and I borrowed it and I brought it to school one day and I was like, I'm going to play the clarinet now. Um, even though there were even more people playing the clarinet <laughs> and the band teacher was like, okay, that's cool. Um, why don't you try the bass clarinet? Cause we need people to play the bass clarinet. And I was like, awesome. And, um, so I played that for a while. Um, I think that was really like what got me into knowing that lower sounds were my thing. Then um, I mentioned that I had a friend that played the oboe and I was starting to get a little bit, uh, the person that also played bass clarinet with me didn't really like me very much. And she kept like emptying the neck of her bass clarinet on me while I was putting my bass clarinet away. What? So I was like, oh my God, this is horrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, um, I ran away and went to play the oboe with my friend. And um, I did that for a couple of years. Um, and I liked that. Uh, it was a little bit high and squeaky for my taste, but um, by the time I got to high school, um, we, w- we went to a new school and this is like a public school, um, like state funded school music program. So not a lot of people had their own instruments. I didn't have my own oboe and neither did my friend. So we were using this instruments from the school. We both went to the same high school at this would be age like 13, 14. And um, she had been playing the oboe longer. And so I was like, the school only had one instrument. So you go ahead, you, you play the oboe, I'll go back and play the bass clarinet or something. And the teacher overheard this conversation and was like, no, 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 no. You're gonna play the bassoon. And so that was how I got to the bassoon. And I think the whole time I was just looking for a different sound um, and really the bassoon was it. So I like to say that the bassoon found me. Oh, that's so beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually awesome. That story, like you actually know how to play several instruments not just two that's amazing yeah yeah and i think um it's really informed a lot of my teaching um because i see um things in overarching themes rather than instrument specific um issues of course there are a lot of things that are um, any woodwind instrument has in common um and everything has its own differences but 
there's always people having issues with breathing, with articulation, those sorts of things always come from the same kind of root um, cause, I think. Yeah. Talking about like technique and like air pressure and stuff like that, how did you, like what was your experience with comparing like the oboe, the flute, the bassoon, the bass clarinet, how are they different and how are they similar? At that age, I didn't really know to compare them, but later now that I've um, taught a lot more, um, it's clear that they're very different, of course. Um, the amount of air that you use for each one is very different. The flute uses all of your air, but has no resistance. So you don't, uh, so what a lot of people playing the flute tend to blow really hard, but not support um, when they're very young. And um, the clarinet has the most resistance, in my opinion, unless you're playing an oboe with an extremely hard reed. <laughs> um, but uh, you need a lot more support to just make a sound work. And the oboe and the bassoon are very dependent upon reeds, of course, but um, they don't really require as much air as you think. And most people run into this problem of having too much air. So you get a lot of air pressure inside your head that does not get to go into the instrument. So you feel really unpleasant in your body. And um, that sort of sensation um, kind of tripped a bunch of uh, like light bulb moments in my head because I felt that I was getting like this panic response. And we never really talk about how our bodies react to what it is that we're doing when we're playing. Mm -hmm. But our breathing affects our mental state a lot. Um, it affects like how clearly we can think. Um, for example, like if you're trying to play uh, for an entire page without being able to have a breath, you're going to be really stressed and your brain is going to be uh, much more distracted by the time you're about halfway through um, because you're like screaming for oxygen. <laughs> yeah. What would you say, like for people who don't know, the main difference between a single read and a double read, which the single read is what we use as clarinetists, and then the double reads are for the oboe, the bassoon, and other instruments. The biggest issue that I run into, um, especially with like students who switch from a single read to a double read, is the fact that the read is the mouthpiece completely self-contained. So you don't have a way to um, stabilize or solidify anything with the read. Um, with the clarinet, you have you can you can make plenty of adjustments with your bottom lip to figure out what type of sound you want to make. And you don't really, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't really have any adjustments on the top side, um, aside from maybe like tightening or pressure in general. It, it depends because you can take more or less of the mouthpiece, you know? Mm. Uh, it yeah. really depends, but there's little things um, that you can do. Yeah, um, but with the oboe and the bassoon, it's all the way around. So you have to be thinking about the strength up here and how it like relates to the strength down here. And of course, if you're playing a single read and you're like um, biting down super hard, you're not um, making an effect on the read with the top side. But like, basically you can bite as hard as you want and the, the, there's always gonna be space between the read and the mouthpiece at the opening of the mouthpiece. If you bite down on a double read really hard, it's just going to close up and you're not going to be able to get any air through at all. So you get the sensation where you feel like you're blowing against a wall and people are, uh, especially really young students, end up thinking that their read is actually too hard when they've just clamped down on it so much they can't blow through it at all. So I think that's really interesting. What was the most challenging instrument that you played? Uh, I don't want to be biased with bassoon. <laughs> Why? Just because of the the fingering scheme um, and the reed. Um, you have a lot more leeway with, with a bassoon reed than an oboe reed, of course. Like if you're going to make adjustments on it and scrape it, you can make some mistakes and there are ways that you can like make up for those mistakes. Whereas on an oboe reed, there's just a lot less material to work with. So if you mess something up, it's kind of like game over. So um, in, a, in that sense, um, the oboe is more difficult, but the oboe only has like it has less than two octaves that you play in usually and uh, 
the bassoon has three and a half. So it's just a lot more notes to be responsible for. Um, dealing with the low and the high range, um, I think is more difficult. The fingerings are crazy. Um, so yeah, a lot of the fingerings don't make a lot of sense. Whereas on something like clarinet, where you do have a huge range, um, the fingerings are much more logical. Mm. How are they crazy? Like, are they crossed fingerings? Yeah, lots of crossed fingerings. Lots really? Of fingerings. Yeah, lots of um, extra keys. Um, like every finger has a key, at least one key. Um, I'm trying to think. There's only, yeah, the third finger on the left hand is the only finger that is only responsible for one thing. <laughs> gosh everything else <laughs> that sounds oh, no, no, no. horrible second, second finger right hand as well everything else has like uh on the on the on the pinky finger there's there's three on the thumb there's four this thumb has nine this pinky finger has two um there's two keys on a lot of the fingers um next to each other so um yeah <laughs> wow i never knew that <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's amazing. You get really good at playing Nintendo and, and having thumb wars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I was wondering, like, how did the flute help you with the bassoon technique-wise and also, like, the bass clarinet, if it did help? Um, yeah, let's see. Um, I think from changing instruments so much, I got pretty good at just, like, picking up fingerings and seeing similarities between fingerings and because there's a lot of things that are similar just because of the nature of the instrument. It's just like a, a closed um, system um, based on, you know, you put a finger down, you go lower. Um, if you need to overblow something, you open a upper finger and um, it usually works out. And of course the bassoon works like that too. Um, so as far as that goes, I think it was just like, being able to, or getting used to adapting and changing um, from one instrument to another is quite useful on the bassoon because we have a lot of alternate fingerings too. Um, and of course the bassoon isn't the only one that has alternate fingerings, but I like to scare my students with my fingering book, um, which unfortunately I don't have here with me, but uh, it's like this thick. <laughs> oh my gosh. One fingering per page and it's, it's got trill fingerings and everything, but. Um, for our high F sharp, there's 37 different fingerings, so uh, lots of options. <laughs> wow, I'm learning so much. Yeah, the bassoon is crazy. <laughs> I never thought that fingerings, you know, on the bassoon would be that complicated. Yeah. To be honest, a lot of a lot of them are very instrument dependent, so not everything would work on every every bassoon. Um, and plenty of bassoons have uh, slightly different key work. Um, and then also there's the difference between the French bassoon, which I'm sure you're familiar with, and the German style bassoon. There's a lot of fingering differences there too, but plenty of, um, like I, I would sometimes use some French fingerings for trills because they work a little bit easier. Um, there's always like another option to help tune something or to help something speak better. You are very aware uh, of your health as a musician. What was the biggest lesson that you've learned about yourself physically and mentally? And how do you take time for yourself as a professional musician? The biggest thing that I think that I've learned about myself is that I tend to not notice um, pain until it's a problem. Um, I have kind of a high pain threshold and I get very used to just ignoring sensations in my body that are, that are consistent. Um, don't do that. Don't be like me. <laughs> um, but um, developing an awareness of that uh, is just something that I'm always um, working on for myself and um, trying to get in touch with um, things in a slightly different way, um, trying to like visualize areas of my body that um, I maybe might feel are not like closed off, but um, a little bit more of a mystery. Um, and I don't know if that's a, a fairly common experience or, or not, but, um, sometimes I talk to people and, and they are like, no, I can, uh, imagine exactly how that would feel. And others, um, don't have any kind of idea. Anyway, um, that's led to, uh, quite a few injuries for me. Um, 
also because of the culture that we have in classical music where we're just expected to keep working and to push through pain and to not uh, admit that we have injuries. Um, I think that's much better than it was when I was a student, but it's, uh, it's still a problem, I think. Um, none of us want to be seen as unreliable. Um, so we always will push through any kind of injuries that we might have. Um, so how I take time for myself, um, I do yoga in the mornings, um, not always because I tend to oversleep sometimes, but <laughs> if I do get up in time, I do yoga in the mornings so I can make sure that I'm actually like paying attention to how my movements feel each day, kind of gives me a little bit of a, of a baseline for what I'm looking for. And then when I go to rehearsal, I feel more balanced. Um, and I will actually notice if I'm sitting a little bit more crookedly, which I tend to do. Um, the, um, the chairs that we have in orchestra are not quite the right height for me. So I have to like adapt really strangely. Um, that's something that I think plagues a lot of people, especially um, shorter people. But yeah. <laughs> How do you make reads for your bassoon? Um, from, from tube cane. So from the very beginning, um, I've actually picked the cane that I have. So from the very beginning, like, um, I went to where it was growing in the ground and picked it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I have, uh, the machines that I need to process the cane. So, um, it's a pretty, uh, long and involved kind of process, but, um, I can make a read from start to finish, um, in about, 40 minutes, um, but usually it's all done in stages. So um, it'll be uh, a little bit of work on one stage and then I'll work on some other reads that have, um, that I've already started. So there's always some like developing. We all go through obstacles uh, as musicians. And what was a defining moment for you again, besides uh, your thumb injury? Well, more recently, I would say the pandemic, of course, um, had a really big impact um, for me, for for all of us, for in many ways. Um, before the pandemic, I was actually thinking about quitting my job. Um, I was very burnt out, and I was in a position where I felt like um, there just wasn't. I wasn't seeing any kind of. Uh, satisfaction for what I was doing I think um I'd started to really just like lose that spark and I was angry all the time I was complaining all the time I my shoulder was hurting all the time <laughs> and um we we were we were playing some really good repertoire um but I didn't have the best relationship with the conductor um there's a lot of uh kind of sexism going on in a lot of layers of management around here. Um, and yeah, I don't, I don't want to get too into it because who knows who will see this, but um, there has been um, some contract problems and pay problems and um, just generally, I felt like our work was really underappreciated and not well paid. And it just was bothering me more and more and more as the time went on. Um, and then the pandemic happened and everything just like had to stop. So um, I didn't practice for months at the beginning of the pandemic. Like I just put my bassoon down and I was like, okay, see ya when I want to. And I just didn't want to <laughs> for a really long time. And um, for a while I felt really guilty about that and it's like having this huge existential crisis like I should change careers I should like I don't know go uh work at a cafe or something um but very very luckily I could spend the time um where everything was really locked down with my parents so um right now I live in in Mexico and I was um living in Mexico before the pandemic and once it was clear that um we weren't going to have concerts for the foreseeable future. Um, I, I got on a plane and I went home um, to be to stay with my family. Um, so I had like a, a shelter to be in and I didn't really need to worry about making money, um, which was very, very, very lucky. I know that a lot of musicians um, absolutely did not have that kind of um, 
safety net. And um, at that time, we were, also, we were also getting our salary from the orchestra, which is really, really wonderful. Um, we, oh, and I said I didn't play for months. It's not entirely true because we did have to submit recordings to um, justify our pay at the time, uh, initially in the pandemic. So I would get out my bassoon for the first time in several weeks, play something, record it, and put it back in case and not see it again for a long time until I needed to record something else. Um, so yeah, anyway, um, from, I had a lot of time to think then, and um, just that sort of pause gave me the space that I needed to start to figure out how to dig myself out of this hole that I'd gotten in, just being like so uh, over everything. And that was actually where my um, my course was born out of, my course, the Intentional Practice Program. It was originally me trying to heal myself and taking all the steps that I could to get myself to actually enjoy my work again. And uh, it worked, which is, I'm really grateful for. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I spent a lot of time like, reading and... and um, researching burnout and uh like motivation and um uh yeah just like workplace wellness those kinds of things i feel like we don't talk a lot about being burned out and mm, because like you were saying it's a, a, such a privilege to be a, a musician and it absolutely is but that can also be used as a weapon against us and from like from oneself to oneself, um, but also from the culture of our of our schools and our institutions in general, that um, we are privileged to be able to be here. Therefore, we have to do everything we can to deserve that privilege, and that can be pretty rough on a lot of people. Um, I definitely felt a lot of guilt when I wasn't working. Um, and felt like, especially when I was a student, that every moment needed to be filled with some sort of uh, either practice or learning about history or repertoire or whatever. Um, I remember I had this rule that I couldn't travel anywhere unless I had like either an audition or a masterclass. <laughs> like I wouldn't, I wouldn't allow myself to go visit my friends on summer break unless there was like a masterclass nearby. Um, and uh, it seems ridiculous saying that now, um, but I think a lot of people think similarly. Um, and yeah, nobody wants to talk about it because it's first of all, kind of shameful to admit that we might not be loving every moment of this privileged life. Um, but I think where we, I think that's where we run into a lot of issues and actually it's something that is really common in burnout is where the culture that you're in has this kind of lofty expectation and the values that the culture says it has don't actually match how people are treated within that culture so we use like um medicine as, as an example um people in the medical field are the most burnt out of probably any any workers and i don't want to compare like my burnout to to a doctor or a nurse or anyone um in medicine but um they are lauded as like heroes and um when they get to work people shout at them uh people uh, dismiss them a lot of them are not paid very well so there's this like idolizing of them at the same time as putting them down day to day. And I see parallels in that with us because um, everywhere you go, people hear that you're a musician. Like, wow, that's so wonderful. Uh, you're so lucky. Um, must be really beautiful. And then at the same time, they'll turn around and say, okay, so what's your real job? And <laughs> um, arts doesn't have very much funding. Um, people are always asked to work for free um that sort of thing yeah which is annoying to be honest yeah. you know because mm -hmm. yes it's a different job but it doesn't mean that it's not a job <laughs> you know exactly yeah 
it's labor. And the more, the more that I uh, read about um, like the history of labor, and the more that I, probably just the older that I get as well, um, the more that I really see musicians as workers versus um, like artists. And not to say that we're not artists, but we're more like the artisan class or the, the working class than we are of um, like, a, I'm having a hard time articulating this this point. Um, one of the, okay, one of the reasons that we always wear um, dinner jackets, tuxedos in, in performances is so that we look good for the people who are watching just like waiters at a fancy restaurant. And I see that parallel um, between, like we're, we're in the service industry essentially. And um, we kind of get paid like it, but we don't have the same sort of um, culture, I think. And not to, not to belittle the service industry at all, like those are some of the hardest jobs um, out there. But the, I think the class, divide there is really interesting and something we should talk about more. What are some lessons that you learned as a professional musician? Hmm, so many. Um, one, don't work for free. <laughs> Sometimes um, that does have benefits. So I'll say like with a caveat, um, if it's for friends, fine. If it's for a situation where um, you think there will be pay later, there usually won't be. So uh, I would generally advise against working for free unless you have some kind of um, social reason or um, I guess maybe if they're playing great repertoire that never comes around, but even then I think they should be paying you because this is work. Um, besides that, um, just from day-to-day -day sort of experience in the orchestra. I think that I've, of course, learned a lot about how to play with other people that I would that I didn't necessarily get to experience um, as a student and as a freelancer even. Um, I worked as a freelancer for about 10 years before I got my current job. And um, in this job, we play uh, 30 weeks a year, uh, more or less, and um, with pretty much always the same colleagues. And this, the relationship that you get with your colleagues is really wonderful and fascinating. You get to learn how they play, you get to learn how they might phrase something, um, how to play in tune with them because their particular intonation uh, preferences um, might be a little bit different. You can learn that. Um, and just like becoming an ensemble is really, uh, is really cool. There are always new people coming into the orchestra. Usually like every two or three months we'll have someone, um, we'll have someone leave and someone come in, but when there's a fixed section, um, it's really wonderful to be able to develop that kind of relationship. Um, and that's something that I didn't really realize that I valued so much, this sort of, um, stability that an orchestra job might give you from that from that standpoint and also um just having colleagues that uh, live nearby when you're a freelancer it's like everybody drives in for the concert and goes home immediately afterward there's not really any kind of um there's there aren't too many opportunities to socialize with your coworkers, so it kind of in some ways feels like an office <laughs> i kind of like um so yeah um how to adapt to different conductors. Uh, of course, that's something that um, you do get in school. You will get like um, guest conductors sometimes. So I know some schools have pretty much the same conductor for each project. Um, but as a freelancer, particularly, you would always be playing with different people. So being able to adapt to not only the section, but to the conductor and to their expectations is um, something that takes a while, I think, to get used to but um, it's hard to put your finger on how to teach that, I think. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, you have to experience it for sure. Um, what's your favorite piece that you played solo and with the orchestra and which one was the most challenging technique-wise? I think my favorite solo piece is, it's a hard question, either the Sensons Bassin Sonata or the Tansman Sonatine. Um, there's a lot of really, really great French repertoire for bassoon, so um, I think would probably be at the top of a lot, a lot of people's lists. Both of those are pretty technically difficult. Um, and they have just like transcendently beautiful moments um, interchanged with a lot of really fun things. Um, one of the best things about bassoon, <clears throat> the bassoon is that there's such a variety in articulations and in um, like playing styles that you tend to get in repertoire. Um, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of instruments, but in um, you can really tell when someone knows how to write for the bassoon when they give you all of this variety and Tonsman and Sassons do this. Um, so you get a lot of time to really sing in the tenor register, you get a lot of time to play really spiky articulations and um, just like have fun while you play and be challenged at the same time. In the orchestra, my favorite piece to play um, I love playing Mozart and Beethoven. Um, I think I would probably say Shostakovich 10, though, because it has some great solos and um, it's just a really wonderful piece. Um, one of my favorites. And it's such an emotional journey, I think. Um, and being able to experience that is really special. Tchaikovsky's music is really special, I feel like. Um, there's so much magic in it, and I always dreamt to play <laughs> his music in an orchestra. Like, it must be insane. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's so many things where it's just uh, so special. I don't think there's anything really like sitting in the orchestra. Um, like you can go to a concert and that's cool, but just it's so different. Just sitting right in the middle where we sit is great. <laughs> what would you say is the most exciting thing um, with playing with other people? Hmm. I think that there's still so much that's unexpected. People will surprise you all the time. Um, and whether it's, it's on purpose or not, is is really exciting like even when mistakes happen um or accidents happen um on stage it's always really exciting <laughs> my first job was with an opera company and um that was really fun there's always mm -hmm. something completely crazy that happens pretty much every night and um like people will not come in so someone has to improvise something until they do uh, things will fall off the stage. Um, like, it was just a really fun environment. <laughs> and I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like someone who loves chaos, but I think maybe I do. <laughs> What's one misconception about a professional orchestra? That our work starts and ends in rehearsal. And I would say that's a misconception from the general public, not from other musicians. So um, if you want a misconception from musicians' standpoint, I would say that it's, how would I put this? I think that pretty much anybody who's at the level of coming to a professional audition can do the job and having the job is what gets you to the point of being good at the job. There's so little that an audition would tell you about how good of a colleague you are, about how to blend with other people, about like all, 
all manner of things that happen in a workplace like an orchestra. And of course you need to be able to play well, but um, when you get to the point where you have graduated music school and you are capable of like playing your instrument without any disasters happening, I really think most of the readiness for getting a job, for having a job comes from getting the job. I hope that was clear. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, it is. And it's so refreshing actually to hear. Yeah, I've been to a lot of auditions um, where no one gets hired. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that, but um, most of the time it just makes me so angry because any one of those people that was at the audition could have done the job just fine. And uh, especially when it's like a smaller ensemble, it's like, who, who are you looking for? Who do you think is going to come to this audition next time? You know, um, in, there's so much development that happens, particularly like in the section um, for a person that, I mean, I feel like I could play completely differently than I did before I got my job. And even probably six months in was a very different player. So like having the opportunity to develop into a role is really wonderful. And hardly anybody gets that opportunity. And we feel like we need to be like ready when we get there, but there's a different kind of ready that we're not necessarily prepared for in that way, if that makes sense. What would be your advice for someone who is taking um, his or her or they first um, audition for a professional orchestra? First, I would say notice what you're thinking about when you're practicing. Notice what makes you anxious in the, um, in the time leading up to the audition because those sorts of things are what's going to come out as um, nervousness or anxiety or fear on the day. Um, my, my general philosophy is that like all of our practice experience is something that we bring to us in a performance and in, a, in an audition and things like that. So if you're speaking to yourself really aggressively, if you're telling yourself that you should be able to do this or what's wrong with you, why can't you do this? Oh, I'm so stupid, that kind of thing. That is going to make you stressed and it's going to make you feel terrible about yourself. And in the long run, that's not going to help you play to your best abilities. Some people respond to negative um, motivation, but most of us don't. And research really shows that it's usually very detrimental to us to to work under threat or work under um, any kind of like fear motivation. So try to get more peaceful in your feedback to yourself and how you talk to yourself in and out of the practice room. And um, notice what it is that you believe about that particular audition and auditions in general. Like if you believe you're not good enough, uh, no matter how much you're gonna like try to talk yourself up, you'll still be believing that and you'll still have some uncertainty that's going to make you nervous later. Um, so all of these like small little threads will come together and later looking back, you can see possibly where they came from. I was wondering um, about your, your thumb, you know, uh, injury that you talked about on your website. You talked about like the need of not telling your teacher about it until one day you just lost it and you cried in front of uh, him or her, I don't know, or they. <laughs> um, why do you think, if you want to talk about it, uh, of course, do you think it was like an exterior pressure with the school or like maybe you or both? How did you ended up by being scared actually of telling your teacher that I'm hurting and I don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I can't say that there was anything particular that it came from that I could trace back and say like, this is why I, I didn't feel comfortable. Um, my, my teacher was kind of a scary guy. Um, he was very friendly outside of lessons, but in lessons he was really intense and people would cry in lessons all the time. Um, he, was, he was pretty scary. Um, I, 
think he only made me cry one time actually in the lesson. Um, but a lot of times I would leave the lesson and go cry in a practice room. Um, and yeah. <laughs> so um, he, he was just, he had very high standards and uh, like if he thought that you hadn't practiced enough, he would kick you out of the lesson until you go practice. He was that kind of teacher. Um, and that's what his teacher was like. And I don't want to dismiss that as, you know, being like, oh, that was what he knew. But um, that's how a lot of people learned um, and still learn. And I really, really hope that we can not teach like that. Um, I learned a lot from him. And some of the things that I learned from him were how I don't want to teach. Um, so it was in general, just the kind of atmosphere where I didn't really feel that comfortable sharing any extreme vulnerability. And I felt like an injury was a pretty extreme vulnerability. Um, I don't remember any um, issues with people being sick, but like it was expected that we would come to lessons being sick, which now is like crazy. <laughs> um, but that's the that's the culture we have too in classical music. Like how many of us have gone to work sick? Probably all of us. Um, I've played concerts with food poisoning before. Um, like, you just don't take time off. Um, yeah. It's really expected that you are there all the time and you don't get sick days and you don't get days off. And that's just it. Um, and I don't know if it was like just general pressure that we all picked up from school. Um, not all, you know, people that, um, that feel this way or if it was actually explicitly stated to us at any point. Um, I can't remember. It was kind of a long time ago. <laughs> Almost, no, I won't say how long. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, um, it was, and what was ironic was that when I did tell him, um, he was really kind and helpful about it. And I absolutely did not expect that. Um, that's good yeah so I feel bad that my um that my impression was so mm -hmm. negative of, of mm -hmm. that point um but uh, but clearly something had happened to make me not feel safe coming forward um and also I think that there were other people in the school at the time who had injuries who were just like okay well you know my thumb hurts I gotta keep playing there was a flute player who had mm -hmm. um carpal tunnel pretty bad I think and she would just keep practicing and um it was just what we did and uh yeah don't be like us you feel pain there's a problem yeah. it's not something that we should push through it's not like no pain no gain um pain is uh pain's your body trying to tell you something and yeah. um our instruments are not designed to be like ergonomic um especially if you have small hands um most instruments were designed by men for men and um plenty of instruments are just extremely awkward um i don't know if you've ever played any like um classical clarinets or or um yeah uh, yeah a lot of those um like on the on the baroque bassoon it's almost impossible for me to reach the third figure um tone hall on the left hand <laughs> it's just such a stretch it's so awkward but um yeah, it's like a lot of this career was not really designed for for people who aren't male. Um, so in, I'm not sure where I was going with this. Um, oh yeah, the instruments weren't designed for you. So don't like twist yourself into knots trying to adapt to something that was not ever um, meant to fit your hand. Don't like, hurt yourself to do that. There are ways to adapt. There are ways that you can um, uh, make adjustments to your instrument, uh, make adjustments to your posture, to how you carry your instrument that are um, maybe not traditional, but would help you a lot. And there are, there's no shame in that, but I think a lot of people would look down on some adjustments. Um, uh, there's an oboist um, named Alex Klein. He used to be in Chicago. And I think now he's in Calgary. Um, he had vocal dystonia, and he had to leave um, his job. And it was a very, it was a very serious um, issue where he lost control of some of his fingers. Um, and 
can be like a repetitive strain injury, um, but a lot of times they don't really know what causes it. And anyway, he he stopped playing for quite a long time, for years. And um, in the, now that he's playing again, he he made an adaptation to, I, I, did I mention he's an oboist? Um, he made an adaptation to one of the keys on his oboe um, by gluing a coin to one of the keys <laughs> just to make it so, so that his fingers could fit more easily um, and be in, in an angle that was more uh, conducive to how his hands worked. And I think a lot of a lot of people would be like, why why do you do something so ridiculous to your instrument? But it helps you. It helps you. So, you know, it's so interesting because that's something that actually we've been thinking about um, a lot. Um, I was so used to sing. And one of the first things that you learn as a singer is you have to take care of your voice because it's your instrument. You have to take care of your body because it's your instrument. And why don't we say the same for people who play whatever, you know, the violin, the clarinet, the guitar, you know. Our entire body is our instrument, you know, even if we are not singers. So you have to take care of your body and you also have to take care of your mind because you work with your mind. Um. Yeah, it's 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 crazy that we don't prioritize that more than we do, and that's definitely yeah. one of my missions in life to change that. Because, I mean, well, like from a uh, from a practical standpoint, the reason that anybody could pick up any instrument and sound different than the next person is because of your body. Uh, like, if you play the clarinet and I play the clarinet, even if we're playing the same instrument, we're going to sound different because of the shape of our sinus cavities, the shape of your throat, the shape of your chest, like just the type of, of resonance that you can get with your body is different from person to person. And even if you're playing an instrument where you don't need to be thinking about what's going on inside you, it's still affecting your sound. So we need to really see that as a, a huge factor. I mean, maybe even more than the instrument in how we sound is how we move and how we take care of our body. Yeah. and. Also like that thing with no pain, no gain. Mm -hmm. With my experience, like there's so much competition and emphasis on competition, um, at least at my conservatory, um, that you kind of feel pressured to work even harder, not smarter. Definitely. You know, harder when you actually have to work smarter you know, yeah. for so many things, mm -hmm. but you're like, oh, I don't do enough, you know, because you're always thinking, oh, but what is she doing? What is he doing? What are they doing? And it puts you in a bubble for me, you know, from the start, um, I was and still now, unfortunately, I'm a perfectionist and I always feel like, oh, this is not good enough. Like I have to do that better, I have to, you know. And in a way, it's good because I'm putting standards, I know what I want, but there's another perspective to it, another facade to it, which can be quite toxic sometimes. And you don't really see your value as what it is truly, because you're only thinking about have to be the best when you have to actually focus on being the best version of yourself and the only way to do that in my experience is to take care of myself and I feel like the public there's a vision with what it is to be a musician you know what I mean like sometimes you are, we are put it such a pedestal that you have to work so hard you know every single day yeah yeah, and the whole narrative about, um, well, it doesn't pay very much, so it's like a labor of love. Yeah. Um, not only do you have to put all, you have to put all of your body and all of your energy into it, but all of your spirit and your and your soul. And um, at some point, there has to be something left for you as a human, and a lot of times it isn't. And like conservatory, especially, is a really hard place to learn lessons like that because it's not really set up to um, be 
focused on people. Uh, and I'm sure that there are exceptions and there are plenty of great teachers out there who really want people to um, focus on themselves as human beings. But in general, the industry just doesn't really see us as much more than, than um, replaceable parts within the larger whole. And if there's something wrong with one of the parts, then you toss it out, you get another one, you know. Um, uh, it's really interesting that you said um, that we need to be seen as working harder. Because I think that's really what it comes down to is that we feel like we're being judged by others for not working hard enough. And if we're not working hard enough, then we don't deserve to be where we are. And I'm sure a lot of us have actually heard that before. Uh, and if you're, even if you are getting the same amount done in less time, you still feel like you need to be seen as working harder. There's still this, um, this feeling that whatever you're doing is not enough. And that underlies, I think, every interaction that we have. So figuring out how to reassure yourself, how to nurture yourself, how to love yourself in that situation is, is very difficult, but it's very, very important. Yeah. So to wrap up, if there's one crucial advice that you would give to other musicians, you no know, students or professionals, what would it be? Um, well, I said this before, but I think just look at how you're talking to yourself figure out what thoughts you're having as you're playing. A lot of times we might not be thinking in words, but um, if you are talking to yourself as, as giving yourself feedback, really try to be as, as neutral as possible. Don't put any, any value on things as being good or bad. I know that seems extremely uh, counterintuitive, but there's no way to exactly quantify what is good and what is not. Um, I, I tend to put things in terms of, oh, that's not quite what I was going for, or I would rather that this happen this way. Um, something that you can actually work with rather than something that you are using to punish yourself to work more, I think is really, really the best place to start. If you pay attention to your thoughts, a lot of us who haven't paid attention to them before, we'll notice that we're kind of saying a lot of really, really mean stuff to ourselves all the time. Um, so try to slowly transition yourself into not doing that. <laughs> go, for, go for as neutral as yeah. possible. It doesn't even need to, you don't need to be like a cheerleader all the time because you're, first of all, you're not going to believe that all the time. You're not going to be like, one on one hand saying to yourself, oh, I'm the worst musician, I'm never gonna get a job. And on the other hand, be like, no, you're the best, you could do this. So you're not gonna believe it. Um, but try to keep any judgment out of it because that tends to get around the um, the not believing it part. Well, thank you so much, Corey, um, for giving me so much time to you know listen to me and thanks for having me I really that's you. so kind of you really truly it means a lot <laughs> thanks for having me <laughs> so that's all for today i hope that you enjoy our program if you want more content from me you can go and check my instagram at the musician insight thank you all for listening and see you next time bye